This is Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. In this series, we revisit our favorite discussions from High Alpha Speaker Series events. Welcome to our monthly speaker series. And each week, we'll introduce you to the industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors running everything from breakout SaaS companies to professional racing teams and beyond. I am really, really excited for this conversation. You'll hear ideas that will inspire you to overcome obstacles. There's no construction manual when you start your first company. Become a better leader and try new things. When I see a new product category that someone says, like, it's the dumbest thing ever. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Because after all, good leaders are always learning. You are not expected to know the answer. Instead, you're expected to learn the answer. Get ready to build better habits. We are what we repeatedly do. And embrace conflict. Conflict is healthy. Conflict should be expected. With inspirational interviews from High Alpha. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast hosted by High Alpha. My name is Emma Ryan, and I'm on the marketing team here at High Alpha. For those of you who are new to the show, we revisit High Alpha Speaker Series events. For season two, we're giving you a peek behind the curtain into the world of venture capital through conversations with leading investors. In today's episode, we are revisiting a conversation with Kobe Fuller, Upfront Ventures General Partner. Kobe has a deep knowledge of emerging sectors and has invested in companies including Exact Target and Oculus. Outside of BC, Kobe was a CMO at Revolve, one of the largest global fashion e-commerce players where he built a massive community of influencers. Throughout the episode, you will hear Kobe emphasize the importance of just being a good human, and that's something that truly resonates with us here at High Alpha. With that, let's get into the episode. Welcome to High Alpha. For those of you who I don't know, my name is Eric Tobias. I'm a partner here, and uh, welcome to our 38th speaker series. That's kind of hard to imagine. How many of y'all have been to a speaker series? Okay, thanks for coming back. And uh, for those that are new, welcome as well. Yeah, you're new, right? I'm new. Yeah. So I'll introduce Kobe in a minute, but first quick shout out. Thank you to our sponsors, SVB, Ice Miller, and Lightbound for helping us put this on. 38 times now, that's pretty special. And we've got an amazing guest here with us this morning, Kobe Fuller from Upfront Ventures in LA. I was just reminded that it is 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m., Kobe's time. Sorry about that. It's all good. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll get into Kobe's background here in, in some good detail, but some of the quick highlights, Kobe attended Harvard as an undergrad and had a very accomplished track career, which can't wait to hear about that. And then Kobe was an early discoverer and then investor of Exact Target all the way back in 2004, which is really how we, we first came to get to know Kobe. And, uh, and then has gone on to invest in lots of really cool companies, most recently, uh, a, a really fun one. Well, we'll get into all that. We'll get into all that. I don't want to spoil the highlights. All right. Let's jump in. Tell me about tell me about where you grew up. Yep. Tell me about kind of how you got to Harvard. Yes, so I grew up in Milton, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston. And yeah, grew up a uh, family of five, uh, middle class family. And athletics was a huge part of my life growing up. Ran, so ran track. Actually, no, the story was I actually loved basketball. So basketball was my first passion. And Freshman year, as I was trying out for the team, you know, it was uh, a real kind of, uh, I guess, 
eye-opening lesson around sort of where my true skills were. So the story around how to make the team was coach said, you need two of three skills to make the team. It was heart, speed, and actually skill. So at the end of the week, brings every kid into his office and walks through whether he made the sort of squad or not. So he brings me in. He's like, so I know I said you need two out of three things. So you have the biggest heart on the, the actual court and by far are the fastest, but you have no damn skill. <laughs> so like, you're, yeah, there's no way you're going to make this team. So I was like, damn, <laughs> this is like, that's rough. Like, like all those like uh, hours and nights on the court practicing my shots. It's just like, that is just worthless. So then, then I started, I started running track and it was kind of, you know, from there, you know, where I focused all my efforts. So how I got to Harvard, honestly, for me, Harvard was just a stop on the the red line uh, subway of the T. And I really did not even think about going to Harvard or any Ivy League school. And I started getting all these letters from recruiters in like my you know, homeroom in high school. And then I started seeing how people were reacting to these letters from Ivy League schools. And I was like, oh, like this Harvard thing is kind of impressive. So then I <laughs> they recruited me, went in, I got in. And then, yeah, decided ultimately to go. So it's kind of random. Then funny, when I went there, I was like, I don't know if I want to run track. <laughs> so and it wasn't until I think it was like, so I, I ran track my freshman year, didn't really kind of focus on it, but I ran, okay. It wasn't until my sophomore year, we got like the total like snot beat out of us in the Ivy League, like came in last. Mm. And then I was like, I don't like losing. Mm. And that was one where like we really lost. And I just kind of focused my energy to it. And from there, I had you know, multiple you know, Ivy League um, championships and went on to be captain senior year and um, and then decided to run post-collegiate for a bit of time as well because mm-hmm. it was just something around the idea of optimizing my body for maximum performance that also kind of bled into my mind. Yeah. That kind of created the athlete mindset for sort of the actually until this day of my life. So um, athletics is still a huge, huge part of, I think, how I'm just wired. Yeah. And, um, and I kind of really got into my own during Harvard. You're, I'm going to, I'm going to pull on that thread. You're obviously a super fit guy. Every time I've been around you, one of the things I'm most impressed by is you're, you're committed to a daily workout. It kind of doesn't matter what you're doing. My guess is when you arrived yesterday, you went right and worked out. No, I went right into a tequila taste. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then I missed my morning workout because you had me come up here at 8 a.m. So. Sorry about that. <laughs> so like, Sorry about really that. I'm not really helping out my actual physical. <laughs> yeah, but you had fun, right? Yeah, I had fun. It was great. <laughs> like, like, when, when did you, you know, because a lot of people don't get to that point until, you know, later in life. But you discovered early on that was part of your secret sauce. Yeah. Well, actually, I discovered it. Um, in terms of like now my true rhythm that I'm hoping to take for the remainder of my life, honestly, it was about four years ago. Mm. So it was after I had my first child, first boy. And so I, I stopped actually competing roughly at the age of like 31. And then I went through a few years of just kind of just messing around in the gym and not really kind of having a focus. And it wasn't until I was at a football game that I invited one of my friends to who's a guy named Ryan Neese, the son of Ronnie Law, is a former kind of a player in the NFL. Yep. And a company I was looking at is in the fitness space, and they brought a couple of their like their their athletes as well. So we're all this you know football game, and then they're all talking about like oh like their times like former athletes and the fact they're current athletes. And then I was like the the random like moron <laughs> like in the corner that wasn't in shape, and I was like wait a minute like I'm an athlete and like <laughs> but it didn't didn't appear so so. 
from, from that day on, well, it's funny that that guy then next day asked me, like, hey, do you want to like grab a workout? I'm like, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> so grabbed a workout. And then from that day forward, I was like, I'm not going to let my body kind of get to the point where someone looks at me and thinks like, oh, yeah, like he's he would never be an athlete. So from that day forward, I've been working out like five days a week. And then I realized that actually getting to the gym has been helping me on multiple levels, not only physically, but mentally in terms mm-hmm. of opt- optimizing my mental state. And there's also facts around anaerobic exercise, really being able to stimulate uh, creation of like, um, brain cells. Hmm. So I actually feel like I'm getting smarter by actually getting in the gym. And then I realized as well that what's actually now raising me uh, two boys that I really want to be sort of a good sort of um, figurehead on multiple levels to them. Hmm. And part of that is just kind of just physically I want to be in shape and be able to actually keep up with them when they're older and, you know, they're running track and they're playing basketball. Yeah. So it's a sort of a lifestyle change I made about four years ago. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's inspiring. And obviously... We, we can tell you're an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 probably put me on the track and or don't put me in the basketball court. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's, yeah, it's good to know. We'll get you, get you out there for some, some one on one. So I'll still beat you. <laughs> <laughs> Challenge accepted. Um, we're going to cover that later. So you, you, you leave Harvard and you decide kind of immediately you want to be an investor. Yeah. So how that came about. One of my friends on the track team was also on the Jamaican Junior National Soccer Team. He had an idea around using the internet to connect um, players with recruiters. And this was kind of during the late 90s. And um, honestly, I didn't even like soccer, but I was like, oh, this could be pretty interesting. So we started this soccer portal. It's called Fuxito. It's a combination between the words football and exito, hmm. soccer success. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we launched the platform, we quickly became one of the fastest growing and highest traffic soccer sites online. Hmm. Could have sold it for a lot of money, but we didn't because we're stupid kids in school. <laughs> and uh, that was during the process of trying to raise capital for that company where I was excited about the job of being actually on the other side of the table. Because I was wondering, like, who's this person that comes around and asks all these intrusive questions? And then we were, like, begging him to, like, give us money. Like, I was like, you guys want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. Be that guy. Yeah. Um, but it was more for me, like, the b- ability to actually access all this knowledge, all this data, all this information around all these startups and being able to see common trends around what actually causes companies to grow mm-hmm. or fail, that I realized it'd be actually it'd be good to have that vantage point at some point where maybe I'd want to be an entrepreneur myself. So I aggressively tried to find a job as a venture capitalist where I want to stay in Boston because my now wife is still finishing school. And I sent the time physical letters to every Boston-based VC and probably got only like three responses. And those three responses were like, no, like get some real experience or somewhere just like just no. I was like, why'd you even like type that up yeah. and just send it? Oh. Yeah. I was just like, why did you even do that? Like but, but thanks. I don't think any of those firms are around anymore, actually. So that's maybe why. <laughs> exactly. So but that's what I the experience of actually being exposed to raising capital in school is what drove me to want to be a VC. Yeah. And then you landed an insight? So so what happened? I took a job with a firm called Robertson Stevens Investment Banking. It's a tech investment bank that essentially on my was involved for a lot of the major IPOs during the late 90s, like E-Trade and a few others, on my second day, the firm shut down. So that was my entry point of the work world because there was just no tech IPOs going on during 2002. And uh, transitioned into the parent company, Fleet Boston Financial, where I was doing debt capital markets, financing bankruptcies of Kmart and hmm. buying out Bumblebee Seafoods. 
And it was the point where I was in LA looking at frozen albacore coming in from, I don't know, God knows where, wearing a, like a hairnet and I have no hair. I'm just like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and, and then one of my friends joined Inside Venture Partners straight out of school and told me, told me about his experience. And I was like, I, I want to do that job and got to meet the rest of the team and had the opportunity to move down to New York and join Insight. So I did that in 2003. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then uh, let's fast forward. So 2004, you somehow find your way to Indianapolis and in this company called Exact Target. How did that come about? Yeah. So the job at Insight at that time yeah, uh, was one where very little training, like there's a computer, there's a phone, you have a brain and a mouth figured out. So I'm like, okay. <coughs> Excuse me. So I started looking in certain categories of software in this category called ASP, which now is called SaaS, was one that intrigued me. So I started trying to find all these different sort of product categories where software that you know previously was on-prem was now being hosted in the cloud and navigated into the whole area of marketing tech. And um, actually, not even, it's hard to call it marketing. It was email marketing. Yeah. That's a fancy name right now. It's marketing <laughs> tech. Email marketing. So I compiled a list of uh, companies and also got input from you know portfolio companies and other people that were hearing you know about interesting startups that are going really well. And exact target came up. <laughs> so I cold called. Scott, so literally, is like, hey, Scott, it's like Kobe from Insight, like, we're this random fun. And Scott's probably, who the hell is this kid? <laughs> I'm sure. And got to know him pretty well over the phone. And frankly, as, as I was kind of calling down and talking to, talking to every other company in the space, it was very clear that this company, Exact Target, was so much better than these other players that were you know, popping around. Mm-hmm. So, tried to actually uh, bring it to Insight and push it through. And I got people literally saying, like, this is an email blaster. <laughs> like, can spam just came out. Like, are you a moron? Like, I'm used to people saying that. Yeah, so yeah. That's how you know you're doing your job. Yeah. <laughs> so and so then we had to, you know, I had, had to go rogue a little bit and work with another partner, an out partner at Insight to really kind of validate the case around why Exact Target is an amazing business. And ultimately, you know, we invested hmm. $10.5 million dollars in 2004. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. So that was the uh, lot to unpack there. A lot of us in the room know Scott and work with Scott. What was it about Scott Dorsey and, and Chris Baggett and, and the team that you thought these guys are going to win? For me, this job is it's all about the people. You can have an amazing pro- product, a large market, but if you don't have the right team at the top that knows how to build uh, culture and true leadership and know how to think a number of yards down the field to go after a very, very large outcome and vision, then it's, you shouldn't waste your time. And with, with Scott, I think, and the team, the biggest thing was like they were just really good human beings. Mm-hmm. And I talked to a lot of people. At that time, I was talking to at least like 30 CEOs a week. Mm-hmm. And at some point, like, wow, that guy's guy sucks that person sucks like that person's an asshole yeah and then you talk to scott you're like whoa like, who is this person yeah. like are you real and then talk to chris and then scott Blazinski and just the whole crew and it wasn't just like this one individual data point it was the full team mm-hmm. and you, you don't see that very often yeah so that's what's really struck out yeah i think that's part of the secret sauce and 
he's an amazing leader for, for that reason and surround himself with, with people that you know, follow those same characteristics. Yeah. And I think when we look at companies, and I know you look at companies every day, when we look at companies, it's amazing how some simple things like treating people the right way, having a bold vision and executing on that vision. I mean, th- these are sort of, you know, check marks that you're looking for. And yet so many people don't, don't do that, don't have that. Yeah, it's surprising how just the signal of being a nice person, being a good human being. It's amazing, isn't it? it, it people just lose sight of that. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are just way too focused on, oh, I'm trying to be the next unicorn. But it's like, just be a good human being. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, start, start with the basics. Yeah. So you, so you invest in Exact Target. That obviously turned out pretty well. One of the most interesting things I think about about you is you have this investor operator kind of dilemma almost going on. I think it's part of your super. Dilemma. I think it's part of your superpower, frankly, probably on both sides. But one of the things you did when you were investigating the marketing tech space was you created this product-led growth strategy for you as an investor before anybody knew what that meant. So you you had this this kind of index of all the marketing tech companies. And, and you were running this. Ex- explain kind of where that came from, because I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, so that was, I guess, four years ago when I was at Excel Partners, where I had this frustration around the fact that marketers were constantly saying, I have no idea what tool to use to solve X problem, whether it's what sort of CDP or DMP I need to use to centralize all my data, or what email marketing platform should I use for communication? Or I'm tr- having trouble optimizing my paid search spend. Should I go between Ken Shu Marin or these 12 other vendors I've never heard of? And there are these like static PDFs that people created that, in my opinion, the intention was more like shock and awe. Like here's like 3,000 companies on a page, the logos are like this small, and it's like, you the marketer, you're screwed, so figure it out. Or maybe like use our consulting services, will help you. So I thought it was like a whole sham. So for me, it's like, why wouldn't I firsthand try to solve this problem by one, create more organization to the whole marketing tech world. So I was a CMO for a couple of years, and I, for me, it, just, it was very simple around how I'd organize my marketing tech stack. So it was create a structured taxonomy around how all these companies are organized. And then two, curate the best, call it 400 that matter, into this taxonomy. So I'm not cluttering it with all this noise. It makes no sense and you shouldn't even be looking at. But then next, actually allow it to be interactive. So layer in real-time data information through publicly available APIs that allow the actual user of this visualization to very easily see what's the What's this company? What do they do? When were they founded? Are they credible with a signal around how much money they've raised or if they're public and maybe a top like five customer list? Mm -hmm. And those basics are so invaluable when you're constantly trying to figure out, okay, should I spend my time talking to these three vendors as I need to sort of drive performance in my various marketing channels? So I just launched this as a passion project and I found a great visualization design team to do it for me and I did it while I was at Excel and, and pushed it out there and it got a lot of great traction. Did you did you use it as a lead gen tool like for Excel? Yeah, so, so the, the funny thing about how it sort of turned out is that I had this little submission box where if you were a vendor, 
and you don't see yourself on this platform, submit yourself. So yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's like a seed companies coming in. Yeah. And then it was really cool because then I'd see like some of these like big companies that may have omitted that are like, hey, I'm not on this platform. Like, I need put me here. I'm just like, maybe okay. Like, tell me why I should. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, and, and also like portfolio companies of like competitive venture funds. Like literally, CEO is like begging to put me in these three categories, and it's like, well, why don't you tell your investor to create a visualization, <laughs> and you can be wherever you want. Like, I don't have to put you anywhere. Like, you do only this. Yeah. So it's kind of funny to see how using a platform like this allowed me to partially control the conversation and and be more proactive around like how I saw the space and ecosystem actually running and being able to cherry pick the best companies to invest in. Hmm. Yeah, super smart. That's awesome. A uh, lot of learning there for all of us, like how you can hack lead gen and regardless of whatever business you're in, whether you're an investor or whether you're selling a software product, there's there's always a way to figure out how to get people to raise their hand, right? Yeah, and it's funny. It could have been in and of itself a really big business. Yeah, but yeah, G2 Crowd before G2 Crowd, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. When I was talking to them as well about like, because they were just starting and we were kind of comparing notes around how we're kind of laying out the data and even talk about how like the visualization I was using was a unique way in terms of being able to actually present companies. But for me, it was all about like, I'm not, I'm not trying to think about small dollars. Like how can I make whatever a few million dollars off of this like Legion platform? Like I want to find the next multi-billion dollar company. Yeah. So it's all about that. Yeah. So you, you, you referenced that you kind of spent a couple years as CMO. So in between... Your run at, at, at Insight and, and then OpenView. at OpenView, you then went and, and basically ran a marketing department for a really, really large fashion retailer. Talk about that. Yeah. So when I was actually transitioning from Insight and then starting OpenView, there's this company that myself and my, my four partners, Scott Maxwell, were chasing called Revolve Clothing. It was like two years out of just being, you know, you know, off the ground. And we were like aggressively trying to pursue this investment. We were flying out to LA, multiple pitch decks, just mm-hmm. trying to convince them around what they should be doing long-term. And they wouldn't take our money. Hmm. So I became really good friends with the two founders during the process. And probably the course of like seven years, anytime we'd be going out to LA, we'd hang out, or if they're on the East Coast, we'd hang out. And lots of times the conversation would migrate over at some point to me essentially saying how horrible I thought they were at marketing. They had too much tequila. And I'd be like, you guys suck here. Your website's like black and like your emails suck. I know it's going to be the exact target that I can target them better. And um, and then they just got annoyed by all my my pestering. Like you can move to LA and be the CMO if you think you're so good. So I had no practical marketing. screaming at us. Just do it. Yeah. I had no yeah. practical marketing experience, but it was, it was interesting to have the opportunity to go and move from Boston to Los Angeles and my my wife's like, you're a Boston VC. What makes you think you can be an LA fashion guy? I'm like, well, they think I can, so why not? <laughs> so yeah, I was basically on board as CMO of a $30 million bootstrap business that was you know only growing so fast. Yep. And it was first a, a huge shock to the system. I was I living in downtown LA, which at that time was not a very cool place, working in Cerritos, which mm. is not a very fun place in Los Angeles. All that's there is now revolve in a bunch of car dealerships mm. so i was like what the hell did i do to my life <laughs> i think of my first day one of my direct reports that i didn't know prior to taking the job 
was one of the um, founder's little sister. Like oh. she thought she was a CMO, uh, so she, she was not happy about <laughs> me being there. I think like cried on the second day. Oh. So, but it was honestly probably one of the best decisions I made in my career in terms of rolling up my sleeves and actually driving performance and seeing how to one instrument a lot of these tools that I either was investing in or diligencing, and then really thinking with a fresh perspective around how marketers should be using data, but also using new modern communication channels like social media and really thinking about how to create emotional connections with customers in an authentic way, mm-hmm. where at the time, a lot of our competitors who were you know, very well-funded that all went bankrupt, were not doing. Yep. And in two years, they got them to you know, close to a couple hundred million dollar run rate mm-hmm. from 30 with no outside capital. And it just came easy to me, but then I just got super bored doing it because throwing parties and convincing people to post on Instagram for lots of money that I shocked that they could still get. It just wasn't what I wanted to do long-term, but it was, uh, it was an awesome experience. Do you think, um, you know, I've I've always been an operator. I still feel I'm an operator and yet I'm kind of now an investor. Do you feel like you have to be, do you have to have some operating experience to be a great investor? Did this make you a better investor? It definitely did. So, It's allowed me to offer so much value to my portfolio companies. Yeah. Where, like, prior to actually running marketing at Revolve, this is all theoretical. Yeah. And I'd say, I'd still say greater than 50% of the things that came out of my mouth were probably accurate. But if there's like a lot of that that's not accurate and you're trying to help your portfolio companies make decisions that are like critical, that's not, it's not good business. Yeah. So for me, it was being able to actually focus in on one sort of domain area being marketing, which is so much the lifeblood of, 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 of companies, whether it's B2B or B2C, yeah. and offer that perspective, especially at the early stage, where you're really trying to figure out product market fit, you're trying to figure out actually how to get your first few customers and differentiate yourself relative to your competitors, that I prior to actually being at Revolve, I wasn't able to practice that, but I was learning that through rapid sort of iteration cycles, and it just kind of made sense and built muscle that I didn't have before. Yeah. That's allowed me to be able to help my portfolio companies in ways that I never was able to help before. And then the credibility of being able to say that I Jeez. was able to do that and you know, revolves now you know, $2.5 billion public company. Yeah. So it's, it's doing still pretty well. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> doing all right. Um, all right, so you get this deep expertise in marketing tech, like, you know, just best in class. And then you've got this passion around AR, VR, mobility, like things that have nothing to do with B2B marketing tech. Kind of where did that come from? Like talk about Oculus and how you got involved there. Yeah, so um, so Oculus was, again, a lot of this is all random. This life is just random. Uh, I never thought I'd be CMO of a women's fashion company. <laughs> I never thought I would invest in a virtual reality business. but. It all comes to the common thread of, I generally like just human connection. Hmm. And as my job is spending so many so many hours with entrepreneurs, which like 99% of them I tell them no. Yeah. But I still like to find as many times those connections where maybe they don't result in investment, but they result in a, a friendship. Yeah. And maybe that friendship at some point materializes into some professional relationship. So that's what happened with Revolve. Oculus, Oculus, story with Oculus. Brandon Arib, who was the founder CEO of Oculus, 
his first company was a business called Scaleform that he bootstrapped and sold to Autodesk for like $50 million. I passed on Scaleform when I was at OpenView. And, but through the process, we became really good friends. When he sold to Autodesk a year later, he moved to LA at the exact same time I moved to LA for Evolve. And he joined as chief product officer for a company named Gaikai. Hmm. After a year running product at Gaikai, it sold to Sony for like $400 million. And he was thinking about his next thing. So Brendan's doing pretty well for himself. <laughs> so he sends me this text one morning. I won't forget it. He's like, I'm doing this VR thing. Stay close. I'm like, VR, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, you've lost your mind. Like, you think you're untouchable. Like, I sold like these two companies. And now I'm going to like solve the world's problem with virtual reality. So, and then, so I was actually, the story was, I was actually potentially going to join on as CMO of Oculus, where I was just getting tired of, selling women's clothes at Revolve. And what happened is that I also had the opportunity to join Excel Partners. And I was looking at Excel or Oculus, and I'm like, that's kind of like a science project. I don't know about that. So didn't join, but I threw a few pennies in personally during the Series A, and then Mm -hmm. I joined Excel Partners. And part of the idea, too, was just like, yeah, like I can BS my way through marketing women's clothes like what do i know about marketing like a yeah. virtual reality hardware device like if this really works the next investor is going to go to brendan like who's your buddy that knows nothing about this space get him out of here <laughs> but lo and behold by the time that would have actually materialized and people realized that's really full of crap the company was sold to facebook for a couple billion dollars yeah. <laughs> so like i'm not smart at everything should have went to oculus and then went to excel but <laughs> But yes, that's how that came about. And they got exposed to the whole category of of virtual reality, which to me is just a new medium by which we can actually create more human connections through this immersive experience that you can't do outside of potentially just being in a room like this. Yeah. So I'm super passionate about where VR, AR is going long term. I think the category has gotten a bad rap because people have tried to, to create it into something that it just can't be in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. But it's not a matter of if, but it's when you know, pe- everyone here has a VR headset they rely on for both, be, both entertainment as well as productivity and communication. Do you think, just your own personal take, do you think at some point in the future we will not all physically come to offices, but we'll sit at home and you know have our headsets on and feel like we're all together? I mean, I mean wh- wh- where does this, wh- what's the line? Yeah, I don't there may be some people that do that. I mean, hell, we're already doing it with Zoom. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's going to be some people that are actually okay with VR serving that function. But I think there's no replacement for being in the same room, being able to shake someone's hand, truly look at them in their you know, physical eyes, even though VR will simulate uh, virtual sort of, you know, eye sort of contact in a way that it's not doing right now. But you, you can't actually replace actually being in a physical room. Like yeah. being potentially over dinner, breaking bread with a potential business partner or team yeah. that just allows you to connect so much more deeply. Yeah. So, no, I, I don't think if it, if it does replace that, then the, the world's gone to place that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me riff on that for a minute because I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in the room and, and you obviously get pitched by entrepreneurs every day. How important do you think it is for the entrepreneur to be face-to-face 
with the investor because we are doing so much today over Zoom and conference call. And yet, you know, when we look at our portfolio, the when we're out raising money, you know, success rate of when we're face to face versus when we're remote is you know 10x. Oh, during the pitch process. During the pitch process. Oh, it's critical. It's critical, isn't oh, it? Yeah, I mean. Yes. So, so how, how, you know, maybe coach the, the entrepreneurs in the room on, on how they should navigate that. How, how do they get in front of investors? How do, how do they put themselves in the best position? Yeah. Possible? So part of it is uh, definitely warm intros. So cold intros, cold outreach very rarely works, though there definitely is a hit rate, but it very rarely works. So optimize more towards a warm intro. And I'd say at first, Connection around a phone call is not a bad thing, mm-hmm. but if for some reason there's an opportunity to have an in-person first meeting because maybe you are already in the same city, there's a demonstrated interest on behalf of the investor in terms of them already looking in your category. Yep. So you kind of already been pre-qualified a bit to take that first meeting seriously and actually do it in person versus over the phone. And then... In, in my opinion, this is kind of how I work. So it's all getting a sense of the flavor of the person you're talking to. But I rather start off a meeting by actually getting to know the person a little bit and actually establishing a little bit more of a, like rapport mm-hmm. versus like diving right in. It's yeah. like, okay, let me like tell you exactly why I'm going to be the next like Facebook. Like, okay, who are you? <laughs> like, take a step back. And because for me, it's all about that person, you know, that, 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 that person connection. Yep. Because in my opinion, one of the worst things I could do is invest in the best entrepreneur as a best idea what's like the most like miserable human being on the planet that i have to spend at least a minimum like you know a quarterly board meeting with for potentially an eight to ten plus year period yeah. like that's like gonna materially downgrade my life and like <laughs> i like my life i don't want to do that so but sometimes entrepreneurs don't realize that they yeah. think like oh like he, he, they have to invest my business because it's so big like no your business may be a great business, but I don't want to work with you. And it's a two-way street also. And entrepreneurs need to understand whether they truly want to work with an investor. Like how would it be to have this investor in your boardroom? And it's not during the periods where everything's up or to the right because everyone's happy and smiling and it's like, you know, high-fiving. But it's when you hit those, those speed bumps and those massive obstacles, those ginormous pivots. Yep. When you're like, two weeks away from running out of cash. Like, how does a person on the other side of the table behave? And if they're nasty human beings, they don't have your back. Like, it's probably good to get a sense for what that would be like before it actually happens. Yeah, that's, 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 really, that's really good. Let me see if I can land the plane here on, on your career. So, make the personal investment in Oculus. Oculus sells, you're at Excel. And then upfront comes calling in 2016, uh, which you, you've been at for the last three years. T- maybe talk about upfront and, and and specifically what the LA venture market is 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 like today. Yes. Yeah, so upfront materialized again more out of just chance. So my first investment I did at Excel was a company called Invoca, based out of Santa Barbara. It's in the kind of call marketing space. And then my third investment was a company called Osmo, which is a kid's augmented reality gaming company. Hmm. So pretty quickly into my tenure at Excel, 
I found myself on two boards, my now partner, Mark Suster. And the three years I was at Excel, I think every year I was speaking at the Upfront Summit, one of the big, biggest kind of venture conferences in the country. So I was spending probably more time with Mark and team, I feel like, than almost like, like at least half of my partners at Excel. And I spent a lot of time down in Los Angeles scouting, you know, scouting deals. And I realized, like, wow, like I, I really like this platform up front. I love LA as a new emerging ecosystem to build the next, would be software company or consumer business. Hmm. And you know, the partners that I now have the privilege privilege of calling my partners were just incredible human beings that I wanted to spend sort of the the remainder of my venture career with. Hmm. So had the opportunity to yeah, move down and be a GP in 2016. It's crazy, time flies, like three years ago. Yeah. And yeah, just kind of been trucking ever since. Yeah. So the LA ecosystem, it's it's vibrant. It's it's changing dramatically, I'd say through a couple of respects. Well, one is I think about what matters today, whether you're in B2C or B2B, so much of the differentiation is now becoming, or is, is at the actual application and experience layer. Mm-hmm. And I look at Los Angeles as sort of such a center of inspiration towards the rest of the world around culture, design, media, entertainment, fashion. Yep. So being able to have those creatives around you to form your perspectives and form actually how you think about new innovative UI, yep. new innovative ways of marketing through mediums like AR, VR, social media, short form content. Yep. It was just uh, an exciting place to actually you know, forecast where the ball is going next. Hmm. And all sort of the engineering talent that's coming out of all the schools that are there. The also just the amount of actually capital you're seeing that's actually wanting to invest in LA as well. So it's not difficult to get downstream financing from our Bay Area peers to actually um, come to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And it's an awesome place to live. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. for me, it was like, wow, like, like LA is an amazing place to actually be in this one career of venture and then two to build a tech company. Yeah. And you're seeing more and more people actually catching wind of that and, and moving down as well. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a hot time. That's cool. That's cool. Kobe is our lead investor in a high alpha company, MetaCX, which hasn't publicly launched, but many of you know about. We've got many of the MetaCX folks in the room today. <coughs> maybe maybe if you would share your excitement about MetaCX and why you wanted to be involved. Yeah. So uh, a number of reasons. Well, one. Scott uh, McCorkle, spending time with him, and when I I heard his vision for really digital transformation in a true material fashion around B two B software, it was the probably the first time in a long time I walked through a pitch where like. My my brain was just firing. Mm-hmm. Lots of times you hear a pitch like, "Oh, it's the same stuff." Like mm-hmm. some new AI machine learning piece of crap for some <laughs> vertical category that nobody really cares about. Uh, and then I was like, "Wow, like, I want to like redefine the way sort of SaaS is bought and sold and managed." I'm like, okay, that's a big idea. That's a big idea. 
And and then obviously Scott's experience in terms of what he's done over his career was uniquely positioned to kind of go after that. And the team has been able to sort of build and recruit is also a testament to sort of him as a leader and the idea that we're, we're trying to sort of chase after here. But it's it's just a, you know it's 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 just an insanely exciting problem we're going after in terms of how to redefine the way buyers and vendors communicate, share data, and just hold each other accountable. Yep. And no one's talking about it in the way that he's talking about it. The team's talking about it, and the level of technology that needs to be sort of innovated and created and the design layer on top so it actually feels beautiful mm-hmm. so that when you turn on this application it, it doesn't feel like software it feels like very similar to sort of the consumer experiences that you actually interact with on a day-to-day basis yeah like why do you have to go into platforms like salesforce or gains or all those myriad of other software tools where it just it, it feels clunky it feels it, different it, yeah it feel it doesn't feel good yeah so you, you want to feel good when you use software yeah and I think sort of the focus in and around that is a unique sort of differentiator around sort of what we're trying to do with MetaCX. So it's a, it's a truly exciting opportunity that we're chasing after on this one. It's awesome. We're th- thrilled to have you involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A uh, couple fun questions and then maybe we'll take some, some questions from the audience. Quick hitters. How many pairs of shoes do you own? Too many. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen you with the same pair of shoes on twice. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> no, I, got, I don't know. Like, do I, you I, own more than your wife? Yes. Yeah, by by a factor of how many? I don't know. A lot. A lot. So I so I so I have a portion of my closet that's like my shoes that's on rotation. So I probably have like forty pairs of those. Yeah. And then I have uh, a lot more that are just kind of like stored just in other around. crevices that, and also I hide from people, <laughs> not not name my wife. <laughs> that's awesome. Do you have a favorite pair? I don't think I have a favorite pair. I have like my top three, but not a favorite pair. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to have a favorite. That's cool. You, that needs to be your next like passion. You need like a blog of Kobe's shoes. No, I, no. <laughs> That's blog. You have two kids. Yes. How old? Four and 19 months. So what's it like sending kids to school in LA? God. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a lot different than East Coast. Yeah. Let's just say that. Yeah. I'd say it's a privilege in terms of all the resources they have and exposure to amazing, talented, like, creatives that can come in and teach, like, like art or painting or music, like, some, like, kind of, like, you know, extra and, like, a, a band that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, let's teach guitar. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. So it's it's a very unique a unique place to actually raise a child but i'm also scared to hell once they turn to be teenagers when they're like yeah growing up in. because of the celebrity culture that's baked in the city or because of just the the, the time and place that we live all the above yeah 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 we, we don't deal with a lot of celebrity culture here in indianapolis uh, so <laughs> i'd imagine that'd be an added element that would be interesting to navigate Stay up to date with High Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of Enterprise Cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month.
Visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's highalpha.com slash newsletter. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by High Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews and it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.